Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hi. Good morning, everyone. If you're new, my name is Obed, and I am one of the leaders here, and it's a joy to have you with us this Sunday. Um, we are a church that is all about Jesus, and we are a church family on mission with Jesus, and so that's what we're all about. We've got a lot of work to do, so we're going to get stuck in. We have began, as of what, three weeks ago, we began a series in the book of um, Galatians, and so this Sunday, we're going to be continuing in this series, and so if you have your Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, and as always, as is our custom, may you please stand for the reading of God's Word, thank you, Galatians chapter 2, Verses 1 through to 10 reads, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring... Uh, make. My mic is popping, so I don't know. How does it sound? Does it sound all right? Okay. Sounds weird to me. Hi. I'm just being honest. All right, where were we? Verse what? Four? Thank you. <laughs> all right, let's do verse four. Um, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Verse 5, to them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they go and they to the circumcised. Only they asked 
Um, asked to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. We got a lot to cover this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you so much again for this time. You are so good and you are so gracious as we dive into your word. May you help us see you in these words. May we be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. If you're a history major, or you're into history, you'll probably know that back in the first century, there were a lot of big changes in politics, religion, and thinking. Many people from that time did things we still remember today. Um, The first century boasted um, some of history's most impactful minds. Prominent among them was a Jew named Saul, who later became known as Paul. Paul was from a city called Tarsus. Modern-day Tarsus is located in Turkey. Back then, being a native of Tarsus was about as awesome as being um, from a city like Boston, London, Washington, or D.C. It was an intellectual city. And this vibrant intellectual hub shaped Paul profoundly. His deep passion for his faith and heritage propelled him to a leading role in Judaism, making him stand out, making him a standout leader, sorry, within the Jewish community. Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, he, he talks about his success in Judaism. He says, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of, my, many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was so dedicated to Judaism, he felt he needed to defend it against anything or anyone that seemed like a threat. And guess what? After Christianity experienced rapid growth following the death and resurrection of Jesus, what began to happen in Paul's mind is that he began to view Christianity as a threat. Because of this, Paul became a fierce opponent of Christianity, and he violently opposed anyone and everything that was associated with Jesus. He reflects on this season of his life In chapter 1, verse 13, in this way, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. However, things took a dramatic turn for Paul. One day, he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, when he had a profound encounter with the risen Jesus. This encounter radically changed Paul. He was immediately transformed from a fierce opponent of Jesus to an ardent follower of Jesus. The news of Paul's conversion stunned many. Everyone that heard about it couldn't believe it. They were like, what? That guy, Paul, who persecuted Christians? He's now the most passionate, radical follower of Jesus. Just doesn't make sense. Things get even more interesting for Paul 
Not only did God save Paul, but God appointed him as an apostle. When we speak of Paul as an apostle, what we mean is that he was among the chosen few who were hand-picked by Jesus himself to lay the foundation of his church on earth. Paul, saved. Paul, an apostle. Unbelievable, people would say. Think about it. All right, the very man who once sought to destroy the church is the same man who was used to build and sustain the church. The fact that Paul became a Christian was astonishing in and of itself, but his appointment as an apostle is a worthy display of God's redemptive power and grace. What does this teach us? God doesn't just redeem individuals. He also equips and positions them for his purposes, no matter their past. As we've seen, there are so many surprising things about Paul, um, from his upbringing, his background, radical conversion, his role as an apostle. Each aspect of his life is nothing short of remarkable. And as surprising as these things are, there is one more surprising thing about the apostle Paul. And that very thing is his calling to take the gospel to the Gentiles. The word Gentile simply means someone who isn't Jewish. In the Bible, it's a term used for non-Jewish people or groups. And so the apostle Paul's calling to take the gospel to the Gentile is a big deal. And the reason why it's a big deal is because until he came on the scene and got saved and became an apostle and got called to the Gentiles, the message of Jesus was largely seen as a Jewish movement. Christianity started among the Jewish people, and as a result, Back then, it was viewed by many as a religion for Jews. And so Paul's calling to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles was a game changer. It reshaped the early Christian movement and laid the groundwork for the global Christian church we see today. Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the followers of Jesus in an ancient region called Galatia, which is now an area we recognize today as a part of Turkey. And if you remember chapter 1 of the letter, Paul, what does he do? He confronts the Christians in Galatia. And why does he confront them? He confronts them from turning from God and turning to a different gospel. After this confrontation... 
Paul provides an account of his own conversion and the early years of his ministry. And why does he do this? Why does he go through um, pages and writes about his conversion and ministry? Why does he do this? He does this to solidify his calling as an apostle and assure the Galatians that the gospel he proclaimed to them is not a counterfeit gospel, but the true gospel. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, which we just read, the Apostle Paul begins to recount a visit he made to Jerusalem. Many believe that Paul visited Jerusalem five times after becoming a Christian. And this visit he's about to recount in chapter 2 is viewed by many as his second visit. If I had time, we would like we would like explore some fun stuff about the timing. I mean, I was excited about all the timing and everything. I don't think you would be, but anyway, moving on. Um, whether that made sense or not, I don't know. Let's move on. Okay, so why did Paul decide on this second visit to Jerusalem, yeah? Why? Um, what drove him to Jerusalem this time? What took place during this visit? And what important truths can we learn from it? And so if you're making notes, this is what we're going to learn from Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. Number one, what we'll learn is that the gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done. After his conversion, Paul wasted no time in his service for Christ. For the next 14 years, he hit the ground running, traveled far and wide, spread the gospel, and planted new churches. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And so who was Barnabas? Who was Titus? And why did they accompany Paul on this trip to Jerusalem? Let's start with Barnabas. So Barnabas was a Jew from the tribe of Levi, and he lived in Cyprus. I love Cyprus. My wife's family are from Cyprus. So every time I see Cyprus, I make a big deal out of Cyprus. Um, not, I think, two weeks ago, my wife and my family, we went to um, the Greek festival in San Diego. And we went, and my wife had an amazing idea. She said, okay, I bought these Cyprus t-shirts for everyone, and we're all going to wear our Cyprus t-shirts. I see, some of you are like, oh, isn't that? I was like, no way. <laughs> Who do we think we are? But I supported my wife, <laughs> and I wore a T-shirt. We walked into the festival. Look at us, all wearing the same T-shirt. And in my mind, I thought to myself, everyone's looking at us going, oh, my goodness. Who do they think they are? But in my wife's mind, she was thinking, everyone's looking at us going, oh, my goodness. Enough about Cyprus and T-shirts. So Barnabas is a Jew, tribe of Levi, grew up in Cyprus. He was known as the son of encouragement. 
And he was a big supporter of Paul when many people were not. Think about it. Paul was a ruthless persecutor of the church, and then suddenly he gets saved, all right? And everyone, I would do the same. Everyone's like, Paul, I know you have been converted, but I just can't trust you, all right? I've had a similar experience growing up in London. When I got saved, I remember a time me in this ruthless, like, gangster criminal who had become a Christian, and I was spending time with him. And I think there was one point where we were alone in a room. And I thought to myself, if this guy backslides for one minute, I am finished. And so you can imagine, Paul gets saved. Everyone's like, no, I, I, yeah, I know he's saved, but we just can't trust him. But when many were scared of Paul because of his past, Barnabas stood by him. He brought Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem and vouched for his genuine conversion. Together, they were commissioned for gospel ministry, and they took the gospel to Gentiles and established churches. And they had their ups and downs. They had their disagreements. But through thick and thin, they shared a commitment to spreading the gospel of Christ and they were united in this. We're not entirely sure why Barnabas accompanied Paul to Jerusalem at this time, but he probably went with Paul because he was well-respected and held a significant position in the Jerusalem church. So that's Barnabas. The second travel companion of Paul was Titus. Um, we'll, we'll hear a bit more about Titus later. He's going to be mentioned and so for now, let's just, you know, we'll come back to Titus, and let's look at why Paul returned to Jerusalem um, after 14 years of missionary work. Look at verse 2. It says, um, Paul says, I went up because of a revelation. Okay? And then when he got there, um, he had a private meeting with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and at the meeting, he presented to them the gospel that he was proclaiming among the Gentiles. And he did this. How, why did he do it? In order to make sure that I was, run, I was not running or had not run in vain. That's really interesting. There's so much here, but... However confident Paul was that the gospel he had been preaching was a true gospel, this is what he was willing to do. He was willing to submit his revelation to the evaluation of the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. After sharing his gospel with the leaders in Jerusalem, Paul and the leaders, they probably discussed this at length. And ultimately, they concluded that his gospel was identical to their gospel. The gospel Paul was preaching to the Gentiles aligned with the gospel they were preaching to the Jews. Paul's reference in verse 3 further confirms this agreement. Look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. And uh, let's talk about Titus. So, Paul identifies Titus as a Greek. The word Greek here does not necessarily mean that Titus was Grecian ethnically. 
It's simply another way of saying that Titus was not Jewish. Paul says in this verse, look at it, that even though Titus was not a Jew, he was not forced to be circumcised. What does this teach us? This teaches us that the outcome was a huge step in the right direction. The decision by the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem to not require Titus to be circumcised communicated the unity Paul and the leaders shared when it came to the gospel. They all agreed that circumcision or obeying the law was not required for salvation and that salvation was only through or was only available through the finished work of Jesus Christ. How does this apply to us? This is it. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done. For anyone in this room who has experienced true salvation, remember that your salvation has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with Jesus. To be saved, to be made right before a holy God has nothing to do with you, it has nothing to do with what you've done, but it has everything to do with who Jesus is and what he has done for you. That's the gospel. But the irony is, Many of you wholeheartedly believe this. You believe that salvation has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus, but at times this belief has no effect on how you live. You may believe that salvation is a free gift that you receive but you live like salvation is a free gift you have to earn. There seems to be, within some of you, a disconnect between what you believe and how you live. Our struggles today might not relate to circumcision or ancient religious laws, but in various ways, we still try to earn God's affection and approval with good deeds. And so, I want to ask you a question. How have you been trying to earn God's love and acceptance apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ? How have you been doing that? Maybe it's you look at your regular church attendance, and you look at that, and you say, as long as I can have regular and be at church every Sunday, God's going to love and accept me. Maybe it's your generosity. You're super generous with your time. You're super generous with your money. 
or maybe serving or Bible reading and even prayer and fasting. You look at that and you go, the more I pray, the more I fast, the more God accepts me. All right, listen to me. All of these things are good things when approached with the right heart and understanding. But they become problematic if they're viewed as a means to earn God's love and acceptance. Listen, the gospel is the good news that God's love and acceptance comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through human effort or moral achievement. And so how have you been trying to earn God's love and acceptance apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ? David Platt, author, speaker, missionary, pastor, says this. We all have this tendency. We're all recovering legalists. We are all born with a sinful nature thinking we can earn our way to God. This legalistic mindset carries over even after conversion. And so, Christian, may you embrace Christ and trust his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, and his glorious ascension. May you trust that all of that is enough. And so, so far, Paul's second visit to Jerusalem has reminded us that the gospel is all about what Jesus has done. Secondly, um, Paul's time in Jerusalem will show us that the gospel will be opposed. The gospel will always be opposed. During Paul's meeting with the Jerusalem leaders, not everyone there was on the same page. A few attendees disagreed with the outcome. They insisted that circumcision was essential for salvation. They argued that regardless of Titus's godly character, he should be circumcised to ensure that he is saved. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Here in verse 4, Paul describes these naysayers as false brothers. By referring to them, listen, as false brothers, Paul was basically saying that they were not brothers in Christ. In other words, this is crazy. Because they were legalists and because they were religious, Paul said in his mind they were outside of the circle of the redeemed. Paul also says that these false brothers had slipped in to spy out their freedom. 
in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. According to Paul, they were still stuck in bondage. And like prisoners, they came to see what freedom in Christ was like. But unfortunately, even though they came to see the freedom Christ offers, they weren't there to seek that freedom for themselves. Listen, instead, they wanted to pull others back into bondage with them. And so how did Paul and the Jerusalem leaders respond to these false brothers? Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Look at how they respond. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. <laughs> false brothers made no headway with Paul and the other leaders. They resisted the pressure to circumcise Titus in order to preserve the truth of the gospel message for the Galatians. So the question I want us to ask is, do we still encounter false brothers in our midst today? Absolutely. King's Cross Church, the reality is false brothers and sisters have not gone away. They are as present today as they, as they were back then. They are still in existence today and will try to infiltrate our church community to teach false and legalistic gospels that will keep us in bondage. And so the question is, how do you know? How do you know if someone is a false brother or sister? It's in the text. Like the false brothers of Paul's time, a potential indication of someone who is a false believer is when they advocate that salvation comes through human deeds rather than through the grace of God. Thomas Schreiner says this, to base our salvation on our works denies what Christ did on the cross. Any theology that ultimately locates salvation in ourselves and what we do or, or we do to accomplish it is a false gospel. Salvation is no longer the work of God, but represents our work. That's a false gospel. And so King's Cross Church, let's resist false teachers like Paul. Let's not yield in submission, even for a moment. Do you know what that means? Don't even consider it. Don't even entertain it. Don't even go, hmm, that sounds interesting. No. Yield, not yield in submission for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved among us. And so Paul's time in Jerusalem has taught us several things. So far, it's reminded us the gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel will be opposed. Number three, if you're making notes, Paul's time in Jerusalem has reminded us that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Paul continues to recount his time in Jerusalem. Look at verse 6, everyone. Look at verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, Paul says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. And so the pillars of the church not only affirmed and endorsed 
Paul's gospel message, but they also affirmed his calling to the Gentiles. Look at verse 7 and 8. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, um, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, Paul was called to take the gospel to non-Jews, and Peter was called to take the gospel to Jews. The leaders of the Jerusalem church recognized this. They recognized that although they had different missions, their core message was the same. And this was all made official through the right hand of fellowship. Look at verse 9. And when James... I was trying to ignore the lights, but they are distracting me. <laughs> all right, and verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. After Peter, James, and John, known as the pillars of the church, discerned Paul's calling to the Gentiles, they gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. This term is unfamiliar to our modern ears. And so what is this right hand of fellowship? In the ancient Near East, grasping someone's right hand symbolized a solemn vow of friendship. In our day and age, when we shake hands with someone, it's more of just like a handshake of, hello, nice to meet you. Back then, it was a mark of fellowship or partnership. And so in this context, Paul receiving the right hand of fellowship from the leaders of the early church was their way of endorsing God's work in and through Paul. They verbally, theologically, and publicly agreed with Paul's message and his calling to the Gentiles. As we've seen... Paul's calling to take the gospel to the Gentiles was a big deal. It reshaped the early church, the early Christian movement, and laid the groundwork for the global Christian church we see today. The salvation of non-Jews, like Titus, revealed to followers of Jesus in the first century, and it reveals to us as followers of Jesus today that salvation is not limited to a certain group of people, but salvation is for everyone, everywhere who believes. If you're a Christian, the fact that your sins have been forgiven and you now have a right relationship with God, the God of the universe 
has nothing to do with your ethnicity or your background or your social status or your race, but it has everything to do with who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Salvation is for everyone, everywhere who believes. And so the question I'm going to ask all of y'all is that, have you believed? Do you believe this? Do you believe that trusting in Jesus Christ means that your sins have, forg- your sins have been forgiven and you have eternal life in eternity, and right now you have access to God, the God of the universe. Do you believe this? Right now, I want to do something. I want to speak directly to those of you who might be sitting here thinking you're on the outside looking in. I don't know why you came this morning. May have been invited by a friend. I want to speak to those who might feel that the grace and love of God is beyond reach due to your past actions or how you're feeling right now. If you're here today and you're not yet, and you've not yet embraced Jesus as your Savior, I want to offer you a profound truth that can change your life forever. Firstly, understand this. No matter who you are or what you've done, the arms of God remain open to you. Our past might be filled with choices we regret, but that does not indicate our future in the eyes of God. The beauty of the gospel is that salvation is a free gift that is available to all. This salvation isn't a reward for the good things you've done, nor is it withheld due to your mistakes. It is a gift offered by a loving God. And so if you accept this gift, you're not just escaping um, sin or guilt or the fear of judgment. You are stepping into a relationship with the God of creation who promises ever-increasing joy, who offers a presence that comforts in times of trouble and who promises to never leave or forsake you. So if you're sitting here pondering your place in this world, in this universe, and you're wondering, all right, is there hope and purpose for me? I want you to listen to this. There is, and that hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Today, you have an opportunity to embrace that hope, to receive the gift of salvation, and to begin a journey that leads to ever-increasing joy in the presence of God. Don't let this moment pass by you. Some of you are listening and 
you, you've, been a, you, you've been a professing Christian for a while. But maybe you're starting to think, man, I have been living the kind of Christianity that basically means I have been trying to earn God's love and acceptance through my works. So if this is you, the simple message is that embrace Christ. He has done it all. And so we've seen from this historic account of Paul's visit to Jerusalem, we've seen that the gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel will be opposed. The gospel is for everyone. And lastly, we'll see that the gospel makes us remember the poor. So far, the apostle Paul has been describing this meeting took place between him, Barnabas, leaders of the early church in Jerusalem, important meeting concluded that the gospel and um, the gospel isn't something that can be earned it also concluded that Paul um, his gospel is legit and he's called to the Gentiles um, to make this endorsement official the leaders of the church um, gave Paul the right hand of fellowship and as, as you're reading this you might expect that this meeting would just conclude. And it would conclude with prayer. Uh, maybe they'll have a group hug or something and then send Paul off to the sound of roaring cheers. Like, Paul, your gospel is legit. Go. But this is not how it ends. Look at verse 10. Paul says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is, <laughs> this one's flashing in my eyes like crazy. It's making me feel, oh, I'm not going to pass out. I hope I don't. That one. Perfect. Woo! It was intense. Um, before the meeting concluded, the leaders of Jerusalem church encouraged Paul to remember the poor. And Paul responds by assuring them that remembering the poor is the very thing he was eager to do. The Jerusalem leadership had agreed that nothing needed to be added to Paul's gospel. They only asked him to remember the poor. And the Greek word here for poor is patasso. The use of this word in classical Greek referred to a person reduced to total destitution, crouching in a corner, begging. <laughs> and so the leaders of the early church are like, Paul, God has truly called you to the Gentiles, and we affirm that's a true work of God. And by the way, Paul, remember the poor Paul's like, absolutely, that's something I'm really, really passionate about. I know you would agree with me that this ending to this meeting isn't what you would have expected. 
At first glance, it doesn't seem to fit the context. Paul's gospel, his calling to the Gentiles, has been validated during this meeting with the leaders. And they're like, remember the poor? Paul's, uh, Paul's like, yes, absolutely. And so the question we have to think about is now, what has the poor got to do with the gospel? This is it. The gospel is the good news of God's unconditional love, grace, and mercy extended to all, regardless of status or worth. The gospel is for everyone. Jesus often engaged with the marginalized, including the poor. He even taught his disciples that serving the least among is akin to serving him. Therefore, if we are to emulate Jesus and live out the gospel message, King's Cross Church, listen, caring for the poor becomes a natural expression of our faith and an embodiment of God's love in action. In other words, genuine faith is not just about personal salvation, but also about demonstrating God's love through tangible acts of compassion and service to those who need it, especially the poor. Todd Wilson says this, If we're going to live a gospel-rooted life, we must remember the poor. And if our churches are going to be gospel-rooted churches, we must remember the poor. To forget the poor is to drift from the gospel. No matter how orthodox our theology or how white-hot our worship services or how vibrant our youth ministry or how meaningful our family ministries or how large our budget or our attendance, if you neglect the poor, we miss what it means to be truly gospel-centered. In this chapter of our church's journey, we have the opportunity to support and care for the less fortunate. Since we've been gathering for our Sunday services in this building, guess what's happened? For the first time, right? We didn't used to have this. We've had several homeless people just show up. Show up on a Sunday. And I remember when the first time one of them showed up, no one knew what to do. We were like, what did we do? We never used to do it at the Soledad Club because it was so high up the mountain, just there wasn't a, a, you know, a homeless population there. But now, they walks in and we were like, what do we do? Several weeks, there was another homeless person. Also, throughout the week, um, I think two weeks ago, there was a homeless guy who just camped out in our parking lot. The interesting thing about him is he had an iPhone, an iPad, and he was using our outlet to charge his devices. <laughs> I don't know if we can describe him as poor, but anyway, he had his tent, he just camping out, just chilling. <laughs> oh, King's Cross. We, right now, in this chapter of our church, 
we have ample opportunities to demonstrate God's love through tangible acts of compassion and service to the poor among us. And so how are you doing with that? How do you respond to a homeless person? It's tough. And as a church, we are working through how we can better remember and care for the poor. Um, this afternoon, we have some experts in PB who work with the homeless population, and they're going to be here equipping us and teaching us on how we can better serve them. In our journey through Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, we've unearthed some essential truths. We've been reminded that the gospel is all about Jesus. We've been reminded that the gospel will be opposed. We've been reminded um, that the gospel is for everyone, everywhere who believe. And finally, in the light of our Savior's compassion, the gospel compels us to care deeply for the poor, showing them the love and mercy Jesus extends to each of us. And so as we step out of here today, let's carry these truths in our hearts and let them guide our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today with hearts humbled by the message of Galatians. Thank you that the gospel is all about Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer. God, I pray that may we, we may never forget that it's not about us, but it's about him. God, help us. We are aware that the truth of the gospel will face opposition. And so, God, I pray that you would equip us with strength, courage, and wisdom to stand firm against any challenges. God, I pray and I thank you for the gospel. And God, as we reflect on the message of caring for the poor, let our hearts be stirred to action. May the truth of the gospel compel us to care for those in need, remembering that when we serve the least of these, we serve you. God, guide us, guard us, and above all, help us to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.